right. Well, good evening and welcome to our study of Second Kings. Um, it's a. It's turned out to be a very exciting study, more than I thought. You know, usually you think, well, what's you know this king and then that king, but it's it actually has been very exciting when we look at it in the detail. Tonight is a very exciting one for me as well, um, because. One of the reasons why I decided to study the book of First Kings is when I was over in Israel several years ago, uh, they're going through the history of all these places, and of course, they're talking about the kings, and of course, you know the famous kings and the kings that they speak a lot about, but then they would talk about some of these other kings, and you know, I just wasn't up on them like I should be, so I thought, well, I'm going to go through uh, the book of Kings, and it's been great. And one of the reasons why it's so exciting is because I still have the Israel glow. I kid you not. I mean, I, I think about it all the time going through this, these two books. I think about it. And tonight, we're going to be talking about not only about Hezekiah, but Hezekiah's tunnel. Anyone who goes over to Israel always goes through Hezekiah's tunnel. And it's a tremendous thing. It was a tremendous engineering feat. And we're going to find out what it is and why he did it. And, of course, uh, I was able to go through it as well. Uh, Dave Allison, when he went over, he went through it. So we're going to talk about why Hezekiah built it. So tonight, this is entitled... Hezekiah's rebellion, that's against the king of Assyria, which is a good thing. Hezekiah's rebellion and tunnel. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 18. We're only going to cover a few verses in chapter 18 because we're going to spend some time in 2 Chronicles. As I said, Sometimes Second Chronicles will have more detail on a particular situation than Kings, and then sometimes vice versa. So if you turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 13, I'll begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we approach the scriptures, we, we thank you for the privilege of being able today to go to Israel and see all of these things. Lord, uh, the, the archaeology that is being discovered is still being discovered. And Father, we, we, it bolsters our faith because these aren't fables. These are things with archaeological evidence. And, and Father, every day there's something new turning up. And Father, when we get to see it and then we get to read it in the Bible, Father, it just all comes together. Would you help me tonight, Lord, to teach about Hezekiah? And would you apply these things to our life? And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So what I normally do, and I have my notes back there in case you want them. What I normally do is I go through a review of what we covered last week. Um, this is because there are so many kings. This helps me. So I'm hoping that it helps you. And we're in... 2 Kings 18, where we're starting to study about King Hezekiah. And if you remember my comment this Sunday, this past Sunday, was 
you, you come to all these kings, and kings did evil before the Lord, did evil before the Lord, and just evil, 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 even evil that when you say to yourself, well, now I've seen it all. No, you haven't. You know, another king takes that evil to a lower level. And then we have King Hezekiah. He did right before the Lord, and we have a breath of fresh air. Well, we're going to see some of his exploits tonight. And one of the things is that he rebels against the king of Assyria, which is he supposed to do. Then he fortifies Jerusalem because the king of Assyria is coming against him. One of the things he does is builds this tunnel underground to take the water system from outside of the walls inside Jerusalem so that they won't die of thirst. But the very end, we're going to get a little sneak peek that perhaps... Hezekiah loses a little bit of his courage, but it will be restored. That's as far as I'm going to go there. But as far as our review, you remember last week that King Hezekiah came to be king when Hosea was in his third year. We talked about Hosea, and we dealt with him. And King Hezekiah reigned 29 years, and he did right before the Lord. And it also says, and he walked in the way of his father David. I've said it so many times, the kings will compare any king to David. And that's a, that's a tough comparison. But all one really has to do is just faithfully follow the Lord all their life. Obey the Lord. Trust in the Lord and not in these other kings. And especially not worship false gods. That's the biggie. That's the one that God keeps warning them about. And when Hezekiah becomes king, that's exactly what he did. He removed all of the idols and got rid of these places of worship, which these other kings allowed. So you had the temple where they worship the Lord in Jerusalem, and they also worship these false gods. Well, he got rid of them. And he also got rid of the bronze serpent. So the bronze serpent was when the children of Israel complained God gave them a plague of fiery serpents that would kill them, but Moses interceded. God told them to construct a bronze serpent, and whoever looked to the bronze serpent, if they were bit, they would survive and they would live. It's also a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have all been bitten with sin, and because of that sin, we're going to die, not only physically, but spiritually, we will be separated we, it's not like we're going to go in the ground and we're you know, never going to wake up. When you die spiritually, you're separated from the Lord forever. But when you look to Christ for salvation, he is the healer of the soul. He is the one who died on the cross for our sins and forgives us. Well, Hezekiah burned that, that bronze serpent because Israel was burning incense to it. Well... It says about him that he was greater than all of the kings after him. We find out that he orchestrated a revival. And not only did he orchestrate a revival, but he orchestrated a revival not only in the southern kingdom where he is and where Jerusalem is, but also a little bit in the northern kingdom. In the northern kingdom, which they were divided. They did not like each other. They were separated and Hezekiah starts a revival and some of the people from the north come down 
for this revival? Well, we find out that instead of making an alliance with the king of Assyria, even though the king of Assyria is building up more and more power, taking more and more nations, and surely, um, surely Judah is in its targets. They just recently took Israel. So we talked about the captivities, and finally that's what happened to the northern kingdom. They're gone. Well, surely he has his sights on Judah, but Hezekiah will not make an alliance with him. And the Lord blesses him, and he has his own uh, military victories, uh, especially against the Philistines. And this is, this is the, the, the greatness of Hezekiah because he trusted the Lord, and that was indeed the secret to his success. Well, I'd like to now pick it up from there, and I want to first look at 2 Kings chapter 18. And let's go back to verse 7 because I want to talk about Hezekiah's rebellion. This is going to be key to this lesson this evening. And 2 Kings 18, verse 7 says, And the Lord was with him, that's Hezekiah, wherever he went, he prospered, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. And so that is a good thing. Well, it's a good thing in his relationship with the Lord, but it's not necessarily a good thing from the king of Assyria's point of view. It's, it's going to be tested. And what we find out then, let's drop down to verse 13. That's where we're picking it up, our new study. Verse 13, it says this. So after all of these great things, it says, Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. So it's not Jerusalem yet, but it's the cities of Judah. Judah is the southern kingdom. Here he comes. And so this is the part where he is to continue, that's Hezekiah, trusting the Lord for victory. Now before I go any further, I do want to just quickly look at the chronology of Jewish kings just to keep us um, on, uh, on target with this. And... Um, you can see the uh, kings of Judah there on the south, and then the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom. The last one was Hosea. They're done. But we come to Hezekiah. Um, we see Hezekiah in relation to the kings of Assyria. So all this time, Assyria has been getting stronger and stronger and stronger. We're going to see the same thing happen with Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to see him at some point get stronger and stronger and stronger. But here's where they are. So Sargon II was the father of Sennacherib, and he died in 705, and Sennacherib took over, and he's very aggressive. And so he took out, they took out um, Israel, the northern kingdom, and you might imagine they won it all. They're not going to stop. And so they've got their sights on Judah. And Hezekiah is the king. Now, at this point, I want us to turn over to 2 Chronicles. Because what's going to happen is Hezekiah hears about Sennacherib coming and he begins to prepare. 
prepare for battle. He's going to trust in the Lord, and he's going to battle against Sennacherib. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verses 1 through 9. All right, so as we're trying to put these together, sometimes it's a little difficult to know exactly the exact chronology, but I think uh, verse 1 is pretty clear of chapter 32. After these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and besieged the fortified cities and thought to break into them for himself. So we're at the same point. But what Kings doesn't tell us is what 2 Chronicles is now going to tell us. And that is King Hezekiah is going to prepare to stand against Sennacherib. We pick it up in verse 2. Now when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he had intended to make war on Jerusalem, he decided with his officers and his warriors to cut off the supply of water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. But that's not all that he did, and we're talking about the water. The water's going to be connected to the tunnel. We're going to come back to it. Verse 4, it says, So many people assembled and stopped up all the springs and the stream which flowed through the region, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find abundant water? So the idea is, is you have Jerusalem and it's on a hill and it has some fortification and it has walls and it's very, very difficult to get into it and defeat it. One of the weaknesses is that the water is, on, is outside of that. Now, there are springs that do come in, but there is a spring outside that the enemy could, could stay there and the enemy would drink forever. They would never run out of water. And this was a, a strategy back then. Uh, if, they, if you were holed up and you didn't have any water collected, it wouldn't be long before you were ready to give up or willing to die. Same thing with the food. So all of these nations, including uh, here in Jerusalem, they would collect all of this. But... That's not all that he did, and I'm going to return to that because I want to talk about the tunnel. Verse 5, it says, And he took courage and rebuilt all the wall that had been broken down and erected towers on it. So this is good. You need to do that. If the wall is broken, that's the place where the enemy can go through. And you're going to have to send all of your might to that place to keep them from coming in, and now you're vulnerable everywhere else. And then he erected the towers on him. The towers are not only to see if the enemy's coming, but to protect those important areas. They can fight from these towers. And and then it says, and he built another outside wall. Well, two walls is better than one wall, because now not only do they have to scale one, but they have to scale two. And really... The, one of the best safety techniques is keep the fight outside. Don't let the fight come inside. Um, 
just a candid comment. So even in when it comes to church and protecting, um, that's the advice that we were given through the sheriff's department. Keep the fight outside. Don't let the fight come inside. Now that's kind of a downer, and I hate to bring that in, but but Hezekiah understands that, and they're going to keep the fight outside of the city proper. So there's a, a wall around the city, and then there's a wall around the wall in some of the places. And then it says uh, that he made weapons and shields in great numbers. So they are preparing, and, and rightly so, because uh, Assyria is getting stronger and stronger, and they're nothing to sneeze at. So it's, it's very important. Um, verse 6 says, He appointed military officers over the people and gathered them to him in the square at the city gate and spoke encouragingly to them. So now everybody is involved, and they're going to have military leaders even over some of the, the, the uh, lay people. He says to them, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the horde that is with him. For the one with us is greater than the one with him. I wonder if that's where Paul got his thought when he said, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Uh, and of course, that was also the apostle John said that in 1 John, but but. Uh, it's, it says in, in Romans, he, if God be for you, who can be against you? Anyway, this is this great speech that Hezekiah says. Now, before we go any further than that, I want to, uh, I want to now go back to the idea of the tunnel. So let's go back to verses 3 and 4. What's interesting is, is we only get part of this idea of the tunnel, only a little bit of it here. We're going to get another reference, but he just, he said in verse, uh, I guess we'll go back up to verse uh, three, three and four. He decided with his officers and with his warriors to cut off the supply of water from the springs, which were outside the city, and they helped him. Now, let me just say, Okay, so if you're cutting off the spring, which is the spring that feeds your city, but you're cutting it off so that they don't have water, you're also cutting it off from you. Except there was a brilliant idea to dig an underground tunnel so that to see it on the outside, there was no spring. But this spring came in in this underground tunnel into the city and even beyond the city to that part that's between the two walls, people of outside the city could have water as well. It's a brilliant idea. The only problem was they had to go through 1,700 feet of bedrock. Well, they did. And so here in verse 3, it tells us about the supply of water. They're going to cut it off. But what about their own water? I'd like you to go down to verse 30, if you would. Second Chronicles 32, verse 30. Because the author waits till the very end to tell us what has happened. 
Second Chronicles 32.30, it says, It was Hezekiah who stopped the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon and directed them to the west side of the city of David, meaning going through it, but it's underground. And Hezekiah prospered in all that he did. Well, at this point, I just want to take a little bit of a look at, I have, I have some pictures. Some of the pictures are from my trip, and some of the pictures are better pictures because I didn't take them. I got them off the internet. All right, so here is a map of the time of around David and Nebuchadnezzar. Um, this is when we went through the book of Nehemiah, so we had to mention all of these different gates, but you can see where I have circled in red, the Gihon Spring. So the, the spring is coming through there on the east side. And again, the number one, the enemy could easily be supported by that water. And number two, if the enemy wanted to, he could cut off the water to everyone inside the city. So what Hezekiah did and I'm, I'm not exactly sure of the exact route, okay? But he, he filtered it inside the city and then came down and then it went out the west side and it went to the Pool of Siloam. That's a name that we know about. That's mentioned in uh, John chapter 19. We'll talk about that in a moment. But they, they dug this tunnel. Now let me tell you a little bit about this tunnel. One writes, a 1,700-feet-long tunnel cut through solid rock below Jerusalem. And by the way, just as a point of interest, there is a lot under Jerusalem. They think that there are other tunnels that have been dug after this, not for water, but for protection and possibly the Ark of the Covenant is in one of those tunnels. We don't know for sure. We don't know where it is. When we went through the, the book of Jeremiah, uh, there was mention about the Ark of the Covenant, and then all of a sudden the Ark of the Covenant was gone. Uh, there was something secret about this. One of the ideas is that Jeremiah had them put the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem down underneath in one of these tunnels. And, of course, every time they rebuild on top of Jerusalem, that just keeps these tunnels protected and they're lower and lower. But I will tell you this, when the first night we went to Israel, we weren't with the group. Um, it's kind of late and uh, Dale, who was uh, just here the last two Sundays, um, he had been there numerous times. So he said, well, you guys want to go to the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre? And I had never been to Jerusalem before. It's like, sure, I'll go anywhere. We also went to the Wailing Wall that night. So we, we walk in there, and this, this guy approaches us. Um, he's obviously the security guard, and he says, men, we're closing in 10 minutes. And we say, okay, no problem, no problem. Well, we, we, we got in line, and the line wasn't moving very fast. And I'm sure we're just about over the limit, and here he comes up the steps. And he goes, I want you guys to come with me. And I'm thinking, great, my first night in Israel, and I'm going to be in jail, you know. And he, t he, he said to us, he says, are, are you guys pastors? And we said, yeah. I don't, I don't know how he knew. 
um, but he did. And he said, come here, I want to show you something. And he took us to a part of that church that they don't allow visitors. And it, it, it was a gate that was locked. And he said, they believe that through that gate leads down to the tunnels underneath Jerusalem. And of course, we're th I'm thinking, wow, maybe that's where the Ark of the Covenant is. Anyway, uh, uh, we, we ended up uh, leaving, but we went, we went back because our tour then went back and we saw him and we even had a chance to share Christ with him. So it was, really turned out good and I didn't have to go to jail. But there's all these tunnels underneath there. But this is a different tunnel. This is a tunnel that is connected with that spring. And it's the spring of Gihon um, there. And so they directed it. So when you look at the valley of Kidron, that's that valley on the east. I mean, you, you don't see any water going through it, not unless it's raining. You don't see any water going through it, but there is water. Because there's always water in Hezekiah's tunnel when you walk through it. Well, it goes on to say that it, the water was redirected from the spring of Gihon outside of Jerusalem to the east toward the south of Jerusalem into the pool of Siloam within the city to provide water in a time of siege. The tunnel was a remarkable feat of engineering and boring skill, not boring as, oh, this is terribly boring, as, you know, they're able to bore through it. Often 60 feet below the ground and large enough to walk through, it was discovered in 1838, but not until 1909 was it cleared of the debris left by the destruction of Jerusalem back in the 586. And what's exciting about that is we're going to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. So we're going to get to that. So I have a couple of pictures here just to show you. And it really is amazing. Anybody who goes to Israel goes through this. I mean, this is like a big thing. I, I uh, had a professor that would take students um, to Israel. Unfortunately, he was no longer doing that when he was my professor. But I would have loved to have had him. Now here's another picture of perhaps how the spring went. You can see it going down there. And you can see the, the first shape, the smaller shape, that's the city of David proper. And then you have a wall around that, at least on the west side. What about the east side? Well, the east side was like not a cliff, but almost a cliff. And so it would be very hard for the enemy to come up that. Here's another picture of it coming through one of the gates uh, into the city, and it winds around, and it ends up in the Pool of Siloam. And we're going to talk about the Pool of Siloam in just a moment. All right, so when you come walking into it, you're, you know, it's, it's, now, you know, it's now a tourist attraction, and, and it's not like you get to go through there anytime you want. I mean, you have to pay, and then there's rules that you have to follow. And this is at the stairs right before you go down to the tunnel. <laughs> well, there's a marker on there to let you know how high the water is in the tunnel. Now, when we went through, it was only about a foot, 12 inches at the most. Uh, they, they tell you before you go, make sure you bring water shoes and so you're prepared and a flashlight. And um, 
and then uh, claustrophobia pills, if that's your problem. But I wanted to show this here. That railing, I'm guessing that railing there is about four foot high. On, and I got this off the internet. It wasn't when we were there. So I'm thinking that the day that they showed the water level, it was about three foot high. And they will let you go through that three foot high. In fact, I think they will let you go through it any time of the year um, because that professor I was telling you about, he took a bunch of students over there to Israel and, and they're like, oh, Professor Osborne, Professor Osborne, uh, take us to some of the exciting places. And he said to them, all right, well, I, I, on a scale from one to 10, 10 being the highest and most dangerous, um, what do you want to do? Well, you know, you want to go what in the one? Danger one or danger 10? Well, everybody said danger 10. Well, sometimes, and I, I, I don't remember the story, but sometimes the water is chest high in this tunnel. And it's, there's nowhere for it to filter. It's not like you can open a window to the side of it and the water runs out. I mean, once you're in it, you're in it um, until you come to the end. And, uh, but anyway, uh, he was exciting there, and just the story was exciting. I wish I really could have went with him. But this is about three foot, and that's a little, uh, that, would, that would have been a little interesting. So here we go. We're, we're getting ready to go down into the tunnel. And by the way, you could see already uh, where they had to have chipped it away. And, um, you know, in those days, they didn't have electrical tools like, like Tristan has. They had just basically hammer and a chisel, and they had to chisel it out. And this is 1,700 feet. So we're all going in there, and, and you can see the water shoes that that, that fellow's wearing. All right, so here it is. There's the tunnel. Uh, this was this was um, someone that came from Dale Mullinex's church. He was with us. He was behind me. Dale was in front of me, and I was able to turn around and get a picture of him. And I don't know if you can see his face, but <laughs> he, his, what you see on his face is about the way I felt down there. He didn't look too happy. Um, anyway, but he's coming, and, and uh, you can see a little bit of the water, but you can't tell how deep it is. So this has all been chiseled. This has been chiseled by hand. And at one point, they even, wasn't graffiti, but they even um, put their names and, and made a comment in it um, on the side of the wall. Uh, and that actually then was at the destruction of uh, Jerusalem. That actually was taken, but it's in a museum today. Okay, there's a selfie there. Uh, this okay. So I'm very new at this point with cell phones. Uh, I I'm not even sure about selfies, let alone selfies in a tunnel with me having a a flashlight in my mouth pointing it at the camera. So that's a picture of me in Hezekiah's tunnel. Now here's another picture. I didn't take this, but this is a picture of someone else. So this is up to close to his hips. And in this place, you could see um, they, they squared it off here pretty well. Um, you, you can walk through it. I mean, it's not like you're, you're uh, squeezing through it, al although it is only so high. And I remember Dave telling me that he bumped his head a couple times. I think every one of us bumped our heads at one time or another. It was dark in there. So anyway... Here's a close-up of it, and um, you could probably even see the little lower ceiling there where a fellow could hit his head, and then uh, I don't know how tall this fellow was, but it's up to almost his hips at this point. So this is Hezekiah's tunnel. So again, this is what they did. 
in preparation of the onslaught of the king of Assyria, not wanting them to stop the water so that they can't have it, not wanting the enemy to have all of the water. So they did dug this tunnel so that the water would constantly be going through the city of Jerusalem. It's actually marvelous, marvelous engineering. Now, let me say something else about when you go over to Jerusalem and Israel and you see a lot of these places, a lot of these fortifications, many of them have wells. Uh, and it's mostly of that which will collect the rain. It does rain over there, and there are rainy seasons, just not in July and August when I went over. Um, man, it was hot. Uh, we got a discount, but I almost ended up with heat stroke uh, the first night. Um, but I, 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 I was all right. Um, but uh, you just wonder, where in the world does this rain come from? Well, it does rain. I think Dave had some rainy days when he was over there. And when they have rainy seasons, and, and it was marvelous the way they collect the water and uh, the way that they keep the water and that it doesn't dissipate so quickly. So uh, this is all part of that culture that's over there. All right, when you come out, this is where you come out to. This is, uh, uh, I think this is part of the Pool of Siloam. It's not the Pool of Siloam proper. We're going to take a look at that in a moment. But this indeed is uh, part of that. And so uh, one of the things that I just want to point out is that the water is still coming through there today. After 2,000 years, it still works. And the water is... is uh, moving. Now, it wasn't moving really fast. I mean, no one got swept off their feet or anything, and I don't think you would have wanted to have a kayak in there. You, it, you'd have to paddle. You wouldn't go very fast. But nevertheless, I mean, there is water in there, and uh, it's still going. All right. Well, there's a couple of other things that I want to say about this, um, and I suppose I am off a little bit of the subject, but we are talking about Hezekiah. We're talking about Hezekiah's tunnel. It is possibly believed that when he dug this tunnel, it wasn't that he didn't have any other tunnels to use. The idea that there may have been another tunnel at some point to, to capture the water, but evidently not a lot, um, that there may have been one that was already there. How do we know that or why do they think that's the case? Well, it has to do with David. When David went to Jabus, which is the original name of Jerusalem, he came to Jerusalem, or Jabus, which was has this beautiful location that's very hard to penetrate. And then whatever walls that they had uh, were fortresses, and of course uh, we see them always building the wall up. The men from Jabus taunted David and said, David, you're never getting in here. Well, he does. Because one of the men discovered that tunnel to the inside of Jabez. Now, there's a little more, and so I'd like you to turn to, I'd like you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 5. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, in verse 8, because they taunted David, David said, that's it. We're taking him down. 
And this is what he said. David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jesubites, let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul through the water tunnel. Now, the, 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 the comment about the lame and the blind has something to do with the way that they taunted him. But he mentions there the water tunnel. So they knew about this water tunnel, and it wasn't like it was a stair, stairway. Um, and it, you know, it wasn't like it was on an incline. It was, you had to scale it. You had to scale this water tunnel. And we find out that one of the men does that. And he says to one of the men, whoever does this, whoever's the first to strike a Jebusite, he will be the commander of the army. Well, now, if you would, turn with me to First Chronicles. I know, I know we're looking at a lot, but this is how the Bible fits together. And this is why Bible study is so important. So in First Chronicles, not second, I know we were just reading in second, First uh, Chronicles chapter 11, beginning in verse 4, it says this, Then David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, that is Jabez, that's its original name, and the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, they were there. The inhabitants of Jabez said to David, you shall not enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. How? Verse 6. Now David had said, whoever strikes down a Jebusite first shall be chief and commander. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, went up first, so he became the chief. So the idea here is, and we don't know exactly, but probably what happened was that Joab went up and probably followed by some of the other members of the army, uh, and then uh, they attacked, and then maybe opened the gates for the others, I don't know, or maybe all of them went up, but they conquered uh, Jabez. And as, as we look at this, uh, let's go to verse 7. Then David dwelt in the stronghold. Therefore, it was called the city of David. So David was there, and after he conquered it, it was like, this is good. This is a good place and a good fortification, and he liked it, and that's where he called it the city of David. He would have his uh, palace there, and then, of course, they would also have the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle there. Uh, and at some point, David wanted to build the temple for the tabernacle. God said no. Who did he say could build it? Solomon. And now we start over in the book of 1 Kings. Well, he ends up keeping this area, and it's called the city of David. But this, this leads us to believe, or leads them to believe, that so this was an engineering feat without comparison. However, it, 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 they probably had a few advantages. Maybe they used some of the tunnels, and maybe that's why it's not in a straight line. Maybe they used some of these tunnels uh, in order to work their way. And as long as it's downhill, and by the way, it was, when, when you're standing at the top of the uh, Kidron Valley, it, it, it's, it's, it's a very steep 
decline. So it was very easy for the water to go down. Let's see if I can show that. So there, that's kind of perhaps some of the reason why it, it meanders. All right. So this is a major thing. And like I say, when you go to Israel, you'll want to go through this. And uh, most everybody does. And, and it's amazing. But now you know the story of Hezekiah behind it. It's because he rebelled against the king of Assyria, going to stay faithful to the Lord, and came up with this idea how to withstand the siege of the king of Assyria. Now, I want to say something else, too, because this is part and parcel of it. So when it comes out, when this tunnel comes out, this spring that's redirected comes out, it comes out to the pool of Siloam. All right, so we've heard of that before. And um, I want to say a couple of things. So before I show you what I saw when I was there, uh, I would like to read a few things. It says, The pool of Siloam sits to the south of the city of David on the west side of the eastern hill. It received water from Hezekiah's tunnel, which came originally from the Gihon Springs. Water from Hezekiah's tunnel still flows through a covered channel near the pool of Siloam. And some of the original covering stones are still in place. So when we went there, after we went through the tunnel, then we went to the pool of Siloam. And again, when you go there, some of the things aren't that major of a thing that's going to give you awe. It's not going to make you awestruck. But when you put it together and you're saying, this is that place, uh, it, it's exciting. Also, too, when I was looking up some of these things right now, I had forgotten that um, it's not very far from the road, and there's, there's cars that are going by, and there's houses on the other side. That's Israel. That's just the way it is. So when you go there, at first, you're just, you're just appalled by that. And, but once you get used to it, once you get locked in saying, this, hey, this it doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't matter if Ronald McDonald is standing over there. This is where these things happen. Um, and so we, we got to see the pool of Siloam. The pool was discovered in 2004. So all those people who visited Israel didn't really get to see this until 2004 during the preliminary stages of a public works project in the area. Public works, that is the way it goes over in Israel. A lot of these things are found by accident, wink, wink, are found by accident. Uh, like, like I heard uh, not too long ago, um, when you go down into the marketplace, and, and that's, that's an amazing place. Um, when you go, th these buildings are only like about 12 foot wide and maybe about 20 feet long. And the side of them is a spice shop, and the side of them is another shop. And it's just like a mile of that on both sides with tributaries breaking off. Anyway, one of the guys was digging in the back of the store. I don't know why, but he was digging, and they found some of the some boundary walls that uh, determine what was in the city and what was outside the city. So... That, that's an important issue. We'll save that for another day. But anyway, 
it's because of these public works. Well, well, then the archaeologists were able to get in there, and I'll show you what they were able to unearth. So this is what we saw then. This is what you see. Um, you, you find these steps, and then the steps lead to, are two-tiered, and then a capacity for holding water. Now, it doesn't look very wide, does it? Um, in fact, when I was there, there wasn't even that much water. This is kind of pretty compared to what I saw. But the steps were there. And again, it doesn't matter. At that point, you're looking at it and you're saying, this is, this is, Jer this is Jerusalem. This is where all of these things happen. Well, guess what happened? A new excavation project in Jerusalem has unearthed more steps in the pool of Siloam. So let me go ahead and read this, and then we'll show you some of the pictures. So that's the way it happens over there. Um, it, it, they, they, they can only go in so far. Maybe someone owns the property and they don't want to sell it. Um, you know, maybe, maybe there's a property that's already on top of it and a house on top of it. Well, you can't start digging underneath the house. So a lot of things are not going to ever really be able to uh, reach because they've been built on top. Well, this says, a new excavation project in Jerusalem has unearthed steps unseen in over 2,000 years at a place where the New Testament records Jesus as having healed the blind man. And this was put out uh, in March of this year, and uh, this report was given... Um, in, in this month, September. The Israel Antiquities Authority, the Israel National Parks Authority, and the City of David Foundation early this year announced that the Pool of Siloam, a biblical site cherished by Christians and Jews, will be open to the public for the first time in 2,000 years in the near future. Now, this part of it was open, but they're excavating more now and that's going to be you're going to be able to go over there so doesn't matter how recent you've been over there you uh there's always new things so before i went over there you know archaeology is the study of old things and i had this naive notion that well those old things are all discovered and it's an old science man was i wrong when we went over there there were there were those um tarps over everywhere where they were doing those archaeological digs. I mean, every, every time the shovel hit the ground, they're finding something new everywhere we went, and it's just incredible. Uh, so this was very exciting. By the way, it was Dave who told me about this, and he, Dave was very excited. You know what he told me? He said when he goes for surgery, his, his surgery he just had, he said, and they put him under with the anesthesia. He said, I'm going over to Israel, and I'm going to look at the Pool of Siloam over there. Well, after the surgery, we talked on the phone. He said, yeah. He said, I, I was out. I didn't even get a chance to have my imagination work to get over there. But anyway, um, it says, in recent weeks, archaeologists achieved significant progress in the excavation, unearthing some eight steps descending into the pool which had not been seen in 2,000 years around the time when Jesus walked the earth. So let me go ahead and show you what's being done and what's found. And again, there is, there is the idea uh, 
archaeology is a science, but it's, it's like all science, not a perfect science because they go by theory. And obviously they're assuming this is the rest of the Pool of Siloam, though there's always some archaeologic uh, talk and, and controversy saying that it's not. But I, I believe it is. I mean, everybody's been saying it is. This is where we, we were all taken to look at the Pool of Siloam. This is what they're doing now. So you can see those steps, and then now they're starting to move the earth away, and they're finding more steps and walls around it. So it's, it's a big pool is what they think. That's, and by the way, uh, when you go over there, they do have a replica of old Jerusalem, a, a, a model. Um, I mean, it's a big model. Um, it, it's... Uh, it wouldn't even fit in this sanctuary. Maybe, maybe from this wall to the front door, that's, that's how long it is. And you walk around it, but you, it's a marvelous work. And you get to see all these places. And they have what they think the Pool of Siloam looked like. And I have a picture of it here, and we'll take a look at it shortly. But here, here we see it. And then here's another picture. You can see how far back. But I did want to warn you, because if you look up, you could see the buses up there and you could see the other building. That's Israel. And so you will have ancient archaeological finds on one side of the street and modern homes, uh, even more modern than these, obviously, uh, on the other side. And that's just the way it is. But, man, they've got equipment there. Um, and uh, so... Tristan, uh, I know you uh, move uh, heavy equipment, so maybe you want to get a job over there. Uh, we'll come visit you for sure. All right, so, so you can see what they're unearthing. Not, none, none of this stuff was exposed before, and so it's just incredible. All right, here's part of that model I was telling you about. You can see the temple there, right? You, you can see the temple, and um, there on the uh, right, top right, um, and then you could see the narrow neck, and that, the very bottom of that is the, what they think the pool of Siloam looked like. It was a, I mean, it wasn't just a pool, but they ended up making it, a, you know, something very aesthetically pleasing. Uh, there it is, an, another, uh, another picture of it. Okay, there's a close-up of it. By the way, I didn't get any pictures of the model. That was the first day, and that was the day that, uh, that was the last thing that we saw on that day, and, and I was about to have uh, heat stroke, and so I went and found a shade tree or to sit under and while, while the rest of them went through. So if I ever go back, and that's my plan, uh, that I want to I wanna go see this. I want to go, go through all this. But anyway, that's what some think the pool possibly looked like. Um, it's hard to tell exactly where the steps that we were just looking at a moment ago, but anyway, uh, that's just one artist's rendition of it. So, all right. So that's the pool of Siloam, and, and of course, this has just gotten very, very interesting then, and that was fed by the tunnel that Hezekiah built, and had, the water had to go somewhere. They believed that there was some, side, some inside the city that was kept, and then this was outside the first wall. Now, quickly, we're not even going to get to chapter 18, are we? Quickly, turn in your Bibles to John. 
You can see that the Israel glow is still there. I have not lost it. I look for every opportunity to talk about it. But in John chapter 19, verse 1, I'm sorry, John chapter 9, John chapter 9, verse 1, it says, as he, that being Jesus, passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he would be born blind. And look at the great answer that Jesus gave. It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, Jesus is going to heal him. And in the Old Testament, it said when the Messiah comes, he will heal the blind. And when he, when he does, that is going to be an evidence of the Messiah. We must work the works of him who sent me. As long as it is day, night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He's identifying himself as the Messiah and as the light of the world. We would think of he is the only way to salvation and the only way to true understanding. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. And isn't this interesting? Jesus identified himself as the light of the world. Those who come to him and place their faith receive forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and the light of God's truth. And he demonstrated it with an object illustration by healing a blind man. And we're spiritually blind until we come to Christ. So we put that all together. All right, let's go back to chapter 18 now. 2 Kings chapter 18, and we'll finish this out. <clears throat> so what have we talked about so far? Well, we first talked about <clears throat> Hezekiah's rebellion against King Sennacherib. And then we talked about his preparation, Hezekiah's preparation or Hezekiah's tunnel. And now we're going to talk about Hezekiah pays tribute to Sennacherib. That's right. So here we have this king who's a breath of fresh air following the Lord. He's going to trust the Lord no matter what. He does this great exploit of digging this tunnel. He gets everything ready, and we're going to see that he now is going to submit to Sennacherib. Look at verse 14. 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 14. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah. Now remember what 13 was. Remember what verse 13 was. It said, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. And so he sees them coming, and they're approaching Jerusalem, and this is how he responds. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me, and whatever you impose on me, I will bear. 
So the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. What has happened here? I believe that what we're seeing is what can happen to any of us at any time. We're trusting the Lord, strong, faithful. As long as we're keeping our eyes focused on the Lord, we take our eyes off the Lord, look at the enemy, look at circumstances, and we lose our courage. I believe this is what happened. Some have said that really what Hezekiah is doing here is not so bad because he's trying to figure out a, a way of peace. Well, I think that's kind of a moot point. When you say, I was wrong, and that would mean I was wrong by making alliances with the king of Egypt and standing against you, I was wrong. I now submit to you. And of course, when you submit, you have to pay tribute, and he had to pay tribute of 300 talents of silver, which they have equated to 11 tons of silver, 11 tons of silver. And 30 talents of gold is one ton of gold. And he submits to it. And look at what he does. And we've seen this of other kings, and we've, we've, we've looked at it disdainfully that they would do this, and we see King Hezekiah doing this. Verse 15, Hezekiah gave him all the silver which was found in the house of the Lord. And this probably means not, not in the house of the Lord proper, but to the compartments to this. So any that they saved. And it says that he gave him all of the silver found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. So all of the treasuries that were his, he has to give away. One wonders if they don't, in fact, save up all that money in case they ever have to pay one of these kings off so that they're safe. When all along God says, I am your king, I fight your battles. But if you serve other gods, if you turn away from me, he warned them eventually, I will kick you out of the promised land. Northern kingdom, you're already out. Verse 16, and then it said, at that time Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord. Now we are talking about the temple. And from the doorposts, which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid, and he gave it to the king of Assyria. Now, when we were going through 1 Kings many, many years ago, when we were going through 1 Kings, we, we went through the detail of Solomon building the temple. And it was, it was just exquisite. And one of the things that he put in the temple was doors, a door that would lead into the holy place and then another door that would lead into the holy of holies. That wasn't in the tabernacle. But don't worry, the veil was still there. And, and, and it's as strange that it is, the veil is never mentioned in 1 Kings. It is only mentioned a little later in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, and this is all that it says about the veil. And we think so much of the veil, the veil's mentioned in the New Testament when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was rent in two. And it said, he made the veil of violet, purple, crimson, and fine linen, and he worked cherubim on it. But he instituted the doors 
And evidently God accepted that because the, the glory of the Lord came upon it. But he had these doors and these doors had gold on them. Well, now he took the gold from there and he gave it to the king of Assyria. One writes, there was distinct and magnificent separation by doors between the inner court of the temple and the holy place, as well as between the holy place and the most holy place by these doors, these gold doors. <coughs> well, let me kind of draw this all together, just make some quick observations. First of all, one of the things that we have learned is that to be a man after God's own heart like David does not mean that you have to be perfect. And I'm not trying to lower the standard. But when we went through that series, uh, David, a man after God's own heart, spent about six or seven weeks in, in all the aspects of being like that. The, the second week, the first thing we said was, how can he be a man after God's own heart when he sinned grievously? And of course, the answer was he did sin grievously, but he repented genuinely and intensely. And we see some of the Psalms that are written that we actually see his repentance. And, and I mean, it's just incredible. And this is why he still was and remained a man after God's own heart. So here we have Hezekiah messing up, but we haven't seen all of it yet. We're not done. We have chapter 19 to go through, chapter 20 to go through with Hezekiah. Um, so we haven't seen the end of it, but here he does kind of mess up. The other thing that we remark about with these kings when they followed the Lord, it wasn't as if God winked at their sin, but the one sin that God held them to, to a tight standard, was the sin of idolatry. He would not, he does not tolerate idolatry. And so if they committed idolatry, that was the biggie. And we see that with the kings. Um, so he's not committing idolatry, and he got rid of all of the idols, but now he's fearing, and he does what most of the other kings have done. They caved, and they submitted to and paid off this king. So the lesson we would learn from this is that believers can do extraordinary things for the Lord, like he did in the very beginning. As long as we are, one, depending on his strength to do it, and two, trusting in him. The moment we take our eyes off of him, it's all of a sudden we start feeling the anxiety and the fear. And in many cases, we stop going on for the Lord. Uh, not that we turn our back to the Lord, but we stop going forward for the Lord. One of the great examples that I'm going to use to close with was when Jesus came to his disciples. He came walking on water and he was walking on water of the great Sea of Galilee and I have to say it. So I was there at the Sea of Galilee, went up there early in the morning while everybody was having breakfast, and I was fishing in the Sea of Galilee, and I did catch a fish. But before that happened, I just want you to know that I'm not totally secular. I just want you to know that it was still dark, and as the sun started to just come up, the, the, the uh, daylight started to break, it dawned on me, oh, my word. Jesus probably walked, you know, on the ground, on the, where I'm standing. And then I thought, well, maybe, maybe he walked right where I'm going to cast my line. <laughs> but it, it was an incredible morning there and had, had a quick devotion. And then sadly, it goes from that to, Lord, could you please help me catch a fish, the Sea of Galilee? 
And uh, I was able to. I caught one of uh, St. Peter's fish. Uh, didn't have a coin in its mouth. Uh, but anyway, uh, getting back to the story, turning to Matthew chapter 14, I'll ask you to turn there. Matthew chapter 14, verses 21 through 29. It says, verse 21, there were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. So you could see across Galilee. I don't know that you'd want to swim across, but you could see across. And we took a boat ride across, and it took about 15 minutes on the boat. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when, when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. And then Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come, and Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. And of course, then we know what happened. He saw the waves and he began to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand. But the point is, is that he, I don't know how many steps he took. I don't know if they were strong man steps or baby steps. I don't know, but it says he got out of the boat and he walked on the water. And I'm not at all suggesting that that's what we're going to be able to do. But you know, the things that we have been called to do, we can do extraordinary things. We can do to the best of our ability and even greater because his Holy Spirit lives within us. And God can do marvelous things through us. He can save individuals. He, if, if we're just willing to keep our eyes on him and not fear what people are going to say and share the gospel. We can serve in ministries and, and help out in ministries in the church and give devotionals. And, and I know at times it's, well, that's kind of scary. Well, keep your eye on Christ. Keep your eye on the word of God and you'll be fine. That's what I do. And uh, yes, I, I, yes I, I get nervous and scared. Um, I, I remember uh, when I got an opportunity to preach in chapel. It was, it was senior week, and they allowed um, one, a, uh, one a day of the men who were in the pastoral track to come and preach a sermon. Well, I did, and um, I was so nervous, even... I had, I had enough notes from two sermons. They were two sermons, two of my sermons, and I got done in 20 minutes. That's how nervous I was. So, um, yeah, I, I get nervous too, but you, you focus on the Lord. You focus on why it's so important. You focus on the Word of God and how great it is. I'm so excited about tonight, about talking about these things. And, uh, you know, the, the book of First and Second Kings has been just like that the whole time. But just trust in the Lord. Keep your eye on Him. Um, we do find in the scriptures, it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Um, Galatians 2.20 um, says this. 
I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live in the flesh, I live by faith. The, the, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So let us keep our eyes on Christ like Hezekiah did in the very beginning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the archaeological evidence. But more importantly, Lord, we see it in your word, and that's the real truth of it. And Father, we, we thank you for these things, and, and even, Father, glimpses of it moving toward the cross, and many of these uh, analogies lead us to the cross. Father, having saved us, we ask that we will live for you no matter how difficult, no matter how fearful. We pray that our eyes will be kept on you. We won't fear kings of Assyria. We won't fear waves of water because you are our Lord and you have bidden us to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right. So now what we do is we spend um, we spend a little bit of time talking about prayer requests. So if anybody has a prayer request, let's go ahead and you can share that. Let me pull it up here. So I have an 